The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guest exclusively and do not reflect. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the guest exclusively and do not reflect up together as an organization. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect that of the Up Together organization and exclusively are of the guest. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect that of the Up Together organization. I'm Candy Marie. And I'm Ana Diaz. And welcome to the Moving Up Together podcast. Cities and neighborhoods across the country have nonprofits, community organizations, and even government programs that work every day to support and invest in the people so they can thrive. And full disclosure, this podcast was created by a national nonprofit called Up Together. So still despite their, or rather our, good intentions, we often fall short of creating the positive change we want to see. And I'd even argue that it's because we don't actually take the time to listen. Listen, not speak, or listen to speak, but actually listen. And if we just take that time to hear what one one another have to say, we can create solutions, programs, and initiatives together that benefit all of us. So let's start the conversation today. Yes, let's start the conversation. Our special guests today are Mrs. Christina Gonzalez and Councilwoman Julia Mejia. Christina is a mom of four from San Antonio, Texas, a hard worker all of her life. She got sick at the age of 33 and was forced to slow down. She had to learn how to navigate the system to receive disability benefits and has lots of ideas for how that system can improve and better serve people. And Councilwoman Julia Mejia is the first Afro-Latina to sit on the Boston City Council, originally from the Dominican Republic and raised by a single mother was undocumented for most of her childhood, she was forced at an early age to speak up on behalf of her mother and others who felt ignored by the very institutions that were supposed to serve them. That's become a lifelong pursuit for justice and equity, leading her to work as a public servant today. Christina E. Councilwoman Mejia, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. So before we jump in, You know, we kind of want to, you know, shake things up a little bit, if you ladies don't mind. What is a fun fact that we should know about each of you? Let's start with Christina. How about you? Um, A fun fact. Uh, Wow. I'm not even sure. Um, Oh, no, I do. I do. I am. My goal right now is to go into ministry. I am working my hardest at learning everything I can about the Bible, of just learning all the stories and, you know, learning what I need to know to actually fully be able to help other people. Um, I've got a lot of testimonies, you know, I've gone through a lot in my life. So I do have that experience already with just knowing how it is to be broken, knowing how it is to be depressed. And, you know, just, just that whole side of you know, I, I feel what you need to be equipped with in order to really help other people that are going through those kind of things. So I have the experience. And now really what I'm working on is just having the knowledge of being able to like spiritually help other people. So right now, my main focus is just ministry, which is not something that I ever thought I would be going into something that I didn't see my life going on that route. Um, you know, I was more focused on work and where I wanted to work and how much money I wanted to make. And of course, you know, being disabled at this age, it did have a big setback, but it also gave me that opportunity and just more time to spend with God and to spend with actually learning the word so that I can just help other people in, in, in this situation. I love that, Christina. That was absolutely powerful. And I was glad, I'm glad that you were able to find a purpose through your pain, you know? So thank you for sharing that. And I can't wait uh, to see you doing your thing and ministering. Um, I can't wait to hear what you share and how you change the world. I'm ready to see it. 
So thank you for sharing that with us. I'm going to throw it over to you, Julia. What is your fun fact that we should know about you? Okay. So uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you all this um, day. I So I was part of the original um, squad uh, when it was, uh, when FII was first initiated and up together transitioned into this platform. So I feel like I'm an OG. So that's something y'all you should know um, that I was the original up together. You know, yes. I go back, uh, way back. But if there's a fun fact that you may want to know about me is that I am, um, I used to be on air. I was talent for MTV. I was a reporter. And um, I covered the presidential elections in 2000 and went from being a reporter to um, when I had my makeup done and things brought to me to then having to go um, behind the scenes um, as a production assistant and started from the bottom and worked my way up to the top because I was tired of people writing scripts for me that did not really reflect my voice. And so it was a very humbling experience to go from being talent to being a PA. Um, but it was one of those things that I felt like it was humbling, but it was exactly what I needed because I wanted to tell my own stories. Um, and that part of my journey at MTV, not many people know that I went from being, you know, on air to behind the scenes and literally carrying people's coffees and booking people's makeup appointments. But um, it, it really taught me a lot. I was there for 10 years um, after being on air. Um, and I've used that. Um, I've used my what I've learned in New York um, to help support my people here back in Boston. Ah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because you know what? Something that you said really resonated, um, working from the ground up and telling our stories because our stories matter. And people don't always know how to articulate our stories. Um, and we're the best ones to tell it. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. I want to thank both of you ladies first for sharing that. Um, and uh, it's always nice to meet another OG in the business. So uh, thank you. Um, now, I want to I shift it over to Christina. Now, we mentioned in the intro that you got sick at a really young age, 33, and you had to get on a disability while still raising your four kids. So talk to us about what happened. You know, what are some of the challenges you've had um, with accessing your disability ben benefits, um, benefits by the way you and all of us pay for through payroll taxes? Um, and then also, what do you think it will take? And, you know, what, what do you think it will take to make the system better? Um, the biggest struggle, I mean, it, it started from the very beginning. Um, when I got dis when I got disabled or when you say when I first got sick, um, I was 31 years old. Um, I had heart surgery. I had to have a pacemaker put in. I didn't realize um, that I even had heart issues at the time. You know, it started with just, you know, fainting and and being tired all the time. And of, of course, having four children in, in sports and in school. And it was kind of where I I thought, you know, maybe I'm just tired because I've got four kids um, to coming into needing emergency um, heart surgery. So from there, it was okay. I wasn't too worried about getting the disability check. I was more worried about, you know, qualifying for the Medicare and Medicaid because I knew that this this was just the start of it. You know, having heart surgery was the beginning. I have a pacemaker that needs to get checked you know, every six months I've got follow-ups that I need to do. And I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to afford those on my own. Um, so with that, you know, it was automatically where you have to be unemployed. I believe it's one year to even apply for disability. You know, you, you cannot work, you cannot have any kind of income. You can't show that you're able to work. So even being that I may not have been able to work as much as I could previously, you know, I was still capable to some extent, you know, I could still do an office job and, you know, not, not do the physical stuff that I was doing before, but I would have been able to at least provide for my family if I wasn't given that, that ultimatum with, you know, you work for one week, you start over a whole year of not having to work to just qualify, you know, so that, that was very hard on me with having to do that, having to make that decision. Um, you know, once I did qualify for disability and I was getting my SSI checks, you know, you, you get that limit of you can have a part-time job, but you can only make, 
you know, I don't remember what it was back then, but I know right now it's about, you know, a thousand dollars a month from your part-time job before you no longer qualify. So it's like, okay, you add that up with the disability amount that I get, it still doesn't support a family. It doesn't pay a mortgage. It doesn't pay a car. You know, it, it pays some of it, but it doesn't cover everything. So you're, yeah, so you're, you're put there. And the more I dug into it, it was like, okay, is this the amount that I'm always going to get, you know, from disability, I get $842. And I was told, yes, this is the amount you get because this is the amount that you paid into your, you know, your disability or your SSI. Well, I was disabled at, at 31, 32 years old. So of course I didn't have a lot of time to, to pay into it. So because I was disabled at a young age, I will always get a small check. I, I won't get a bigger amount, you know, um, you know, being, being now with, I now have a lot more illnesses than just my heart. Um, so now I do infusions every week. Um, my out-of-pocket care or my out-of-pocket pay for that is $375 a week, um, which has made me make the decision to not work at all. I stopped working in February when I found out that I needed these infusions to be weekly because I couldn't afford the copay and I didn't qualify for Medicaid with having a part-time job. So it, it, it really just became a huge circle of you can't, you can't do this. You can't work. You can't make this amount. You know, we're going to take the Medicaid. We're going to take the Medicare. We're going to take the disability. So it, it's been hectic. It's been a roller coaster. You know, I I've called and asked, what can I do? What other options are there? You know, I, I need these treatments in order, in order to live. I need them in order to survive. And there is, there is no option. There is nothing where you can say you can prove, you know, I die if I don't get these, you know, but I also need to work at some point. Um, it, It doesn't matter. You know, you, if you have an income, it's, you have an income to a certain point, you, you lose out, you know, you have to say goodbye to Medicaid. You have to say goodbye to Medicare, you know, even being that I am fully disabled, even being that this, this is life term for me. Um, it, it's like, it doesn't really matter that you're always going to need that assistance. You still got to choose to be on the bottom to get that assistance. So it's hard. It, it's been very hard. Yeah. It's a losing game. It, it's, it's a, it's a game. And, and I hate to refer to as these subsidies and these helps and stuff like that, but it is a game because how does it make any sense? Listen, if you were making over 500,000 a year, half a mil. I get it. I totally get it. But that's not the reality for most Americans. And I feel you on that where it's just like, you want to get ahead. And this is holding you back for you're getting held back for literally life saving um, treatments. And that is ridiculous. That is, oh, that just drives me. I can't even begin to. Like I said, I I got disabled when I was 31. Um, Got disability when I was 33. And the second I, I approved, of course, I had to wait that year without having it in order to just get my disability and my Medicare. And the second they gave it to me, I picked up a part-time job. And I've worked all the way up until this past April, which, you know, seven years of being on disability, I still continue to work. You know, every year they would send out that notice with, this is what you're allowed to make now. And I would request that many extra hours. You know, I would tell my job, this is mm-hmm. what I can get now. You know, I would push it to those last couple of dollars that I was able to make. Until, of course, my health got to a point where now we need Medicaid. You know, we don't only need Medicare. We need Medicaid to cover the co-pays, to cover medications, to cover surgeries. You know, it it did get to the point where it's like, you no longer have a choice. You know, I I think this last time around when I called in April, it was I was able to work $220 a month, you know, was going to be my limit. And I was like, no job is going to pay me for five hours a week. You know, no job is going to give me that kind of limitation. So it just came down to now you cannot work. Right. You know, even if you have a little bit of energy and you need to work from home, you don't have that option because you need treatment. You need to be able to survive. So it's, it's been hard. It's hectic. Yeah. yeah and, and it breaks me. I'm sure. And, and it and breaks even my heart the, that you even have to choose, ahead, you know, um, so with that being said, what do you think it will take to make the system better? Because it needs to be better. You shouldn't have to put that kind of pressure on yourself of like, you know, 
do like do I have to like you have to choose between your sickness and getting benefits? What do you think you know it, it, it should take to make this system better? I think a better look at at um, what these medications are costing us. You know, I, of course, I know that it's going to be hard because you would actually have to have people that are going to sit there and look at it by case by case basis. Um, you know, not everybody has a copay of eighteen hundred dollars a month like I do. You know, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's larger. But I think taking a look at, you know, this is the copay that she has. We do need her to be on Medicaid. And not even at that, you know, if it's not qualifying me for Medicaid, at least raising the amount that I'm able to work. You know, I can work from home. You know, I worked from home for two years. I'm able Mm -hmm. to sit at my desk and do some things. But why put a limit on how much I can sit at my desk and work when I can make extra money that the state's not paying out? You know, the state, I'm not asking the state to pay for my medical costs. You know, I, I want the state to raise that limit so that I can work enough to pay my bills. I can work enough to pay my medical, you know, my my infusions to pay medication. You know, let me at least be allowed to do that. You know, don't don't sit here and put a limit on me when I'm I'm physically limited. I know that it was very hard to accept the fact that I was going to be disabled at you know 31 years old. That already hurt me. That already was heartbreaking for me. And now I've got to juggle mm-hmm. with. I can't, right. you know, I can't work this many hours. I can't take my kids out to eat. I can't buy them extra stuff because I'm struggling to pay for my medication or I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to work a certain amount of hours. Let me work, yeah. you know, let, let me at least try to provide for my family. And of, of course, yes, I would need assistance possibly, but I think this medication cost, of course, is, is high. It's very high. Um, but I, I really feel like there is a way around this. I really feel like there needs it needs to be looked at better on a case by case basis or just maybe not individually but maybe people in a group of these people you know even people with cancer you know it's expensive to have cancer it's expensive to be sick mm-hmm. um so really i just think it needs to be looked at better yeah yeah and we can all agree that it is a complicated system to navigate just ridiculously complicated um i know for me growing up um, within the system um, because I'm first generation born here and growing up within the system, I had to do a lot of figuring things out at a very young age to help my mom to help me, (laughs) you know, so that's going to segue into this other question for you ladies. Um, Julia, I'm going to ask you this um, with the States being an immigrant country because it is whether people want to agree with it or not that that's just that it's fact the united states of america is an immigrant country with people from all over the world who come here and try to make their lives better um you were born in dr correct so i came okay, here so you I came five. here at a very and, what age did you come yeah. here with with your mom and so i also had to learn when how to five. speak english okay um because when you come to this country at a later age, it's harder for you to learn how mm-hmm. to speak English. So I had to learn how to speak English quick um, because I too navigated um, systems. So, you know, I remember being at the welfare office. Um, I probably was nine years old at the time. I think that's where I started learning how to fight, um, being nine years old and having to translate for my mom. And I remember the um, case manager was incredibly mean. And I had to translate and I chose yeah. not to tell my mom what the case manager had, you know, all of the, you know, I, I only told my mom what she needed to know. I filtered it. Right. And then when it was my turn to translate on behalf of you my filtered mom, it. I added uh, things that my mom did not say, but I said it for her because I said, you know, my mom said that you don't have to be so mean. And I remember mm-hmm. that day like it was yesterday. Like I this I, I share this story because these systems that we're talking about have been designed specifically to keep people who are poor, who are in need in that type of environment. And when you are an immigrant to this country in particular, and there's that extra layer of um, language barrier, you know, your your kids are the ones who have mm-hmm. to translate and they're the ones who have to um, you know, shoulder that burden of, of disregard and disrespect and trying to get services with dignity is harder. Um, and so, yes, you know, this whole immigrant yeah. journey to this country, I had to learn. 
at a very early age how to fight for my people. And I became the official translator for my mom and everybody else around the way. I was that kid that everybody brought with them to the welfare office, to the court, to the doctor's appointment, because they knew if they brought me, they were going to get what they wanted. They were going to have somebody to fight for, right? And, you know, that's just <laughs> that's just norm for, for yeah. folks. And I've navigated, um, you know, very similar to Christine's story. Like, I remember I when I enrolled, I'm sorry, I have a dog and he's scratching himself, so you might hear that. Um, I, I remember... When I enrolled in FII, we're now up together, um, you know, I don't know how many years ago, I, I was experiencing what they call a cliff effect. I um, was not earning my potential. Um, I had to start literally from the top. I had um, gotten pregnant. I had to get a real, you know, I had my own business, but I had to transition into the nonprofit sector because that's the work that I did beforehand. Anyways, fast forward to, I um, had to go, um, to the welfare office um, in my 40s, my early 40s. And that was the most humbling experience because there I was, the person who was on the other side was someone who I, who was my intern. And having to go on food stamps, mass health, mm-hmm. um, all of this just to survive, if you will, and just to get um, support for childcare, I couldn't um, work in my full potential. I had to reduce the number of hours so that I could qualify for um, my child my my childcare. And it goes to Christina's point: is like I want to work. I want to be able to mm-hmm. work at my full potential, but I, I I couldn't make X amount of dollars because if I did, then I would no longer qualify for that voucher. Um, and those are the traps that continue to uh, keep us where we belong. Um, and yeah. the way the system is designed uh, isn't really with this idea of really helping people get up and out of poverty. It's always this, like, how we're we going to give you just as much as you need so that you can continue to be reliant on the system, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited um, to be able yeah. to build my capacity and through my organizing, through Up Together, and through the whole network, um, created a number of initiatives that really help people understand their political power. Um, and through that work, was able to become a community organizer, um, develop that into my own nonprofit organization. And so this whole idea, the way, the way, just because the system is the way that it is, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to continue to function within that status quo and within that system, which is one of the reasons why I decided to run for office Yeah, because I wanted to go behind, um, see what's behind that curtain and figure out how through my own lived experience, how I can shift policy, how I can continue to work with those who are living the realities to inform the work that needs to happen while I'm on the local level. And a lot of the things that Christina is talking about are things that are happening on the state and federal level in terms of just policies, there are some things that I've been able to do on the local level to shift, um, to support mm-hmm. people. And that work, even though it's small, it, it does make an impact. It does have a ripple effect on, on the lives of those that we, that we serve here in the city of Boston. Yeah. And I have, I have a question because our central theme today is respect, right? And all of us have had to deal with the system in one way or another. And I kind of want to go um, square by square because we're in little squares right now for, for the folks that can't actually see us. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Candy, since you're right there in the first one. This is the the main question is, had you been treated with just a little bit of, of kindness um, when you were dealing with your situation and dealing with you know, because people, like you said, Christina said it, people were mean or, you know, they were, they're mean to you. Had you been treated with just a little bit of respect and a little bit of just humanity, how much different do you think you would have been able to deal with mentally what you were going through at that time, dealing with the system? 
This is a great question. Um, I literally just had this conversation with someone the other day, and I come from I come from a another system which is foster care. And when I think about my family, you know, and just like you said, Julia, we were just poor. You know, people have all of these assumptions of how people end up the way they do, and these are their own preconceived views. People think, you know, was your mother or father on drugs? You know, what what did they do wrong? They were literally just poor. They were just working with what they had and what they had just wasn't a lot. And instead of trying to provide us with resources and focusing on reunifying the family, I just it just felt like people were just trying to find ways to tear us apart and to keep us separate, you know? And I think about my mom, you know, dealing with mental health and if she would have just received some help. And when I think about my father, you know, if he would have just had a little more guidance, I think that our family would have seen um, a different level of success. And, you know, those statistics that we often see, mm -hmm. one in, you know, five foster youth don't graduate. You know, I'm, I'm one in six, and I'm the only one that graduated out of the six. You know, so I just think that I just, I wish that things would have gone a lot differently. I, I wish we would have been treated differently. I wish my mother and my my father would have re received respect because even as that child, I was that child that you were, Julia, for your family. You know, I was the one that was speaking up. I was the one that was seeing things. I was the one that had to grow up a lot faster than I should have when I should have just had the opportunity to just be a kid, you know? So I think that one thing that I wish is that a lot of people, when you're in these positions, you don't lose sight of your humanity because at the core, we are all people and we are all human beings and we just want to be seen. You know, we are all dealt different cards, but, you know, how can we help each other and not, you know, keep each other down and step on each other? So. Yeah. Christina, how was it? How do you think it would have been for you? I mean, the hoops are there. We we have to jump through the hoops anyway. But how do you think it would have been for you had someone just had a little bit more humanity uh, with you and while you were going through applying for disability and trying to apply for Medicare and all of that? Um, I, I did end up going through full-blown depression about eight months after heart surgery, you know, eight months after finding out that I was going to be disabled, you know, just finding out that everything was not going to be the way I thought it was. Um, I did end up getting hospitalized in the state hospital for about two weeks and had to do outpatient treatments. And a lot of it was that I found everything so hard, you know, calling and, and just asking simple questions of somebody that is newly disabled, somebody that has never been in this situation before and has never, you know, had to ask any of these questions. It, it was a lot of attitude, like, you should already know this, don't you know? Or, you know, don't you know what it takes? Obviously, you need to not work for a year, obviously. And I was like, no, I don't obviously know any of this. You know, I, I, I'm not going through this regularly. I, I wasn't surrounded by people that are on disability, especially at my age. So I think it, if it would have been a lot more compassion from people and just actually people wanting to help you, not people that are sitting at their desk because they need an income, but people that have those jobs because they want to help people in the situation they're in. They, they have that compassion that the fact that somebody is going through something that they've never been through before, of course, it would have made things a lot easier you know, they may not know me and they may not know my story and they don't need to know why or how I'm disabled. But when you have compassion for somebody, you have compassion just because you're a compassionate person, because you love one another. Um, you know, you don't have to tell somebody, hey, I'm disabled. This is what's going on in my life. No, it's, hey, I, I need help. You know, can you walk me through these steps and just be like, of course, because that person needs help. Yeah, I mean, I think my life has been a series of pushing people to recognize the, our humanity, right? So I talk about this, you know, moment that I had when I was nine years old, and, and it's been like that consistently in every space that I have been in, right? I think that people have this preconceived notion that just because you are poor, you are less than. And having to show up in ways that challenge that stereotype is what I live for, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I was the first person in my family to graduate high school and college. My mom never made it beyond third grade and to this day is 73 years old and too poor to retire. So having to create space for that, for my mom to also see that despite all of that, she's still fabulous and she's still dope and she's still, you know, like 
that helps me help her recognize that coming to this country and overcoming all the hardships that she has makes her um, just as equally, if not even more important than some other folks that, that might be in that room, right? So to help my mom understand her power. And I think that um, doing that for other folks, right? And also recognizing your own stuff while you're map navigating in these spaces has helped me recognize that I am worthy, um, that I don't have to prove myself, that nobody's pedigree or degree is going to minimize my lived experience because my lived experience is mine. And that, you know, sometimes outweighs the degrees and the suits that I have to like contend with half the time that I'm in these rooms, right? And those are my moments. That's when I see myself as a superhero. I got my cape, right? Like, Come on, superhero. So, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. so I, I just think the last thing that I'll say is that on the city council, you know, one of the first things that I filed early on in my, I've only been in office for two and a half years, but one of the things that I did when I first came in was to change the language that we use when we're talking about our people. We're always living with the deficits. Oh, our vulnerable communities, you know, um, at risk. What I've been challenging people to say that we are the resilient community because despite everything that we've been through, we are still standing. And if we could lead with our assets instead of our deficits, then we start shifting the way that people um, treat those who are living um, in poverty because people who live in poverty know how to balance a budget. They know how to work with what they have. And sometimes they dress better than people who, who got, you know, access to dollars because when you're poor you know how to make yeah. it work and i Creative. create creativity mm -hmm. so i think it's really important for all of us to to recognize that no matter where we happen to be in life that if we choose to experience that from a place of um asset and not deficit then it'll shift everything for ourselves and for those who are um interacting with us Yeah, I started, I started a nonprofit. And you have a nonprofit um, as well, correct? It was really hard because it was one of those nonprofits that nobody really wanted to invest in because it was really about building parent power. And most funders wanted us to fit within their scope of work. And I challenged that norm. And I said, no, we want to lead in ways that are culturally reflective. And um, we didn't want to deal with other people's political ideologies, we really wanted to be honest about the work. And we challenged the funding community. And I I always would have I always used to say I would rather walk away from money than to tap dance for it. And um, that gave us a sense of liberty um, and dignity to, to to be honest with you. The parents that founded alongside mm -hmm. me this organization the organization is still standing and we stand on our principles and our values. Um, and there's nothing like that freedom of really being able to, to represent yourself as you are um, and, and hold only yourself accountable to the people that you serve, not the funding community. I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. and, and I agree with you 100%. It's up to us to change the narrative. And just listening to both of your stories, you guys have both shifted the narrative and changed the narrative in different ways, you know, by saying, you know what, I am going to take control of what's going on in my life. Christina, I felt like that's what you did, you know, and also with you, um, Julia, and creating an organization and fighting back and taking control of your story and who says what about it? You know, so so let's think about some of these organizations um, that we've all talked about and we all know about that are creating programs and policies about us without us. You know, they're telling us what to do and how to do it as if we're not capable and intelligent. Like literally, we're literally just saying right now. And it is disrespectful and it's hurtful and they're not keeping us in mind. You know, so with that being said, how does that resonate with you and your individual stories? Yeah, I, I'll just go really quick. I have this mantra and I heard it at a conference, so I don't want you all to think that I came up with it, okay? That's the disclaimer, y'all. And, um, <laughs> and I say this everywhere that I go, is that nothing about <laughs> us without us is for us. 
Nothing about us without us is for us. And I say this because people are always planning things um, and then they come around our way and ask, you know, ask us to react to, to something that we had absolutely nothing to do with. And we have to shift that. Um, we have to be in deep community with those who are living the realities and doing the work to inform every single decision that we make on the policy, you know, front in the nonprofit sector is that those who know the, the realities have the best solutions. And I think that we have an opportunity to not just about creating, <coughs> excuse me, a seat at the table, because even when they invite us to the table, they set terms and condition or they ask us to sit in the kitchen or give us the menu, right? So don't, don't set me up for like you, you invited me in, but then you're mm -hmm. letting me know how I should show up. So there's a lot of work that, you know, policymakers and, and nonprofit folks and, you know, just systems need to really start reevaluating what real engagement looks like. And if it's not centering people, um, then you're not really doing the work. And then the last thing that I'll say is, is that I really, um, this, this is one of been, been one of my biggest pet peeves since I started my nonprofit and even now as a city councilor, is that we always expect people to come and be volunteers. And meanwhile, everybody around that table is getting paid except the people who are living the reality. So and doing the real doing work, the real work mm -hmm. right? So we need to we need to see that that lived experience is also seen just as an equally as important as those consultants from Harvard that are sitting at the table making thousands of dollars, while those who are living the realities that are being the guinea pigs and being interviewed by it, you know, they're they don't they're lucky if they get a five dollar gift card, right? So we have to shift that entire system. So people like Christina, who, who you know, Christina, she's not, she just wants to have dignity, right? She, and if she can't get it through work, she should be a consultant and she should be getting paid for her lived experience and telling stories, right? And, and you know who should be paying for it? Uh, the insurance companies, right? Like we need to find ways to hold corporate and, and, and other folks accountable to the fact that they are making money while the people who are living the realities are getting the crumbs. And we need to shift that entire system so that uh, if we're really serious about uh, disruption, that's what that's going to look like. Yes. Listen, because lived experience has value. You know, where is our respect? You know, if anything, it has more value. I would much rather, you know, have bring somebody to have a seat at the table that actually knows what it feels like, that has actually walked a mile in those shoes. How about you, Christina? That's, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like the reason why it's so hard for them to connect to us or to connect to to you know communities that are low income is because they're not low income you know they they're not they don't live in that environment they haven't lived it yet so how can they sit there and and dictate what we need what we need to survive what help we need you know what programs we need no you know allow the people that are in this situation to determine that you know if you're you're funding these corporations that have have come up because most of these people have gone through it and they've started a nonprofit organization because they want to help people that are going through what they're going through. So allow them that. Allow them, the people with the experience of going through these struggles to determine how they're going to help other people because every single community is different. Every single group of people is different. We all have different struggles. We're disabled for different reasons. We're low income for different reasons. There's just so many different stories that to just sit there and think that everybody is the same or everybody can be helped in the same way is, is completely wrong. And I think that's where things are getting held back. That's why it's taking so long to help people out of the situation is because you're throwing everybody into the same pile and it, it can't work that way. That's not how it's going to go. And it shouldn't have to go that way. Don't box us in. You know, we want to be seen. You know, where is our respect? Because we deserve that. It's a huge undertaking from our communities, from ourselves, um, especially even those who we like I if I have the time, I need to start volunteering more. I need to start pushing myself to do these things because I'm, I'm healthy and I'm in a position where I can. Right. So if if more people start taking that kind of initiative, that's that's a step right there. Now, there's one thing I do want to touch on where it's um, and Julia, I think you mentioned this earlier. 
Um, we're dealing with a whole hot mess from the federal level and then the local level and then the macro local level. So you're talking about your, your, your federal, your country, you're talking about your states, and then you're talking about your different counties even uh, within those states. Um, you guys are both from different parts of the, the country, so Texas and Boston. What is something that you would like to say to your local leaders that you think they should be paying attention to, um, you know, as far as what your specific need is in San Antonio, is in Boston, is, you know, what what's something that you can say will affect you at least at that level before we even get started on the whole fight, uh, the federal fight? Um, Christina? Um, I'm not too familiar with which what level is federal and which level is state or city so of course um my like i said my biggest struggle is the the income guidelines that are given the income guidelines that are given for food stamps the income guidelines that are given for medicaid and and for medicare you know and and it's to the point where i i do understand that there is an income given for a reason because if not they're gonna everybody's gonna get food stamps everybody's gonna get medicaid whether they need it or not but I don't even feel like they give people the opportunity to come up. It's, it's okay. I'm low income. I'm, I'm getting food stamps while I'm low income. And then that very first paycheck where you get a raise, that very first paycheck where you get a good job and you go over the income, bam, all your help's taken away. You get no, no time frame to pay back bills. You get no time frame to save money and put in a savings account for an emergency. You get no opportunity whatsoever to move up. It's it's the second, you know, you, you just come up just a little tiny bit. They want to take everything away from you. And then you end up back at the bottom. It's like, give us, give us some kind of, um, three month period, you know, a six month period, you know, yes, congratulations. You know, you're, you're not going to need to be on food stamps, hopefully for the rest of your life. You, you came up a little bit. Let's help you save some money. Let's help you pay what you need to pay. Yes. Like there, there is no, there is no help here. And like Julia said, it's keeping you at low income. It's, 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 that's, that's really what it feels like in my years of dealing with this and going back and forth and calling and just trying to figure out what can I do? What is my limit? Where am I at? And it, it's like, man, are you really trying to keep me here? You know, do you really want me to be low income? Like, you know, I'm trying to get off of these programs. I'm trying to not, you know, pass that down to my kids. It, it's not what I want. It's not, not that it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's not where you want to be at. You know, it's, it's hectic going into these offices and being disrespected every couple of months to get help because that's majority, you know, the seven, eight years I've dealt with this, you will rarely find somebody that is happy to greet you, happy to see you, happy to help you. No, it's frustration. It's irritation. And I used to think, well, if I come in the morning, they're not so irritated by the end of the day. You know, I would have that excuse. Well, it's already four o'clock. They're probably irritated. Maybe they had a bad person before me. No, they're irritated to see you. They don't, they don't really care why you need the help. And it's like, no, it shouldn't be that way. When you see somebody, it should be like, you're seeing your brother, you're seeing your sister, like, Hey, how's it going? What do you need? Because you're going to give to somebody that you love. You're going to try to help somebody that you love. And we should all love each other, regardless of whether I've met you before, regardless of if I know your story. I don't want to feel sorry for you. I don't want to explain my story to you and you feel sorry for me. And now you want to be nice to me. No, you need my help. Here I am. You need my help. You're another person. I love you. What do you need from me? And, and it just, it really, really hurts me that there's very few people that are like that. You know, and especially when they're put in a position that you are being, you know, we come to you every single day for help. You you are seeing thousands of people that are saying, hey, I need food stamps. Hey, I need Medicaid. I'm not making enough. You're in that position. You've got to have some love in your heart. You've got to have some compassion. You know, don't, don't, don't just get this job because you, you like the pay. Get it because you want to help. people. Yeah, I mean, I think Christina said it all, right? I think. You know, the only thing that I would add to to that is that there is a level of accountability that needs to happen across all um, sectors, right? And I think, you know, political will is part of that process, right? We feel like our vote doesn't matter. Our, if representation doesn't change, then nor would our outcome. So I think it's really important from a local level 
in a state level and a federal level to really understand that there is power in that vote um, and that electing people who are going to represent you and your issues in ways that really are going to address these, you know, concerns that we've been talking about for eons. That's what's going to make a difference, right? Right now we have Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, um, and we have some really dope women who are representing us in Congress. But you know how long it took us to have that representation? And because of that, the conversation and the things that they're fighting for are changing, right? Things that we're, we're hearing about on the federal level are like, wow, people actually really care about that for the first time. People are talking about mental health. People are talking about, you know, all of this and, and it, it does matter. And I think it's important for people to understand that power. I um, mean, I always tell people that even if they don't vote for someone, even if they don't know who in the world is running, just put your own name on the ballot. Because what that does is that it changes um, the type of, of exposure that your neighborhood will have. Um, it changes the type of things that your community and the resources that you will get. Put your own name on the ballot. If you don't like anyone who's running, list yourself. But at least that vote in that community will get counted and people will start paying attention to your neighborhood. I know that it's hard to trust um, the political process, but I only won by one vote you know, in 2019, and that was crazy. Um, and that was after a recount because everyone was like, how the world did she make that happen? At first it was only- See, and if it would have been anybody else, there would not have been a recount. There was. I guarantee. And yeah, so the thing is, is that, and I'm happy that there was a recount because it helped people understand the power of that vote, right? And, you know, I, I say this with all, you know, honesty is like, you know, we're not going to change the conversation until we change the players. And in order for us to change things on the federal and state level, we need people to run for office or we need to make sure that the things that people are running for in their platform reflects our people. And those two things need to happen if we're really going to um, change the poverty um, the AMI, which is, deals with housing, you know, who who can qualify for childcare, who can qualify for food stamps, all of those things are only going to change if we change the players. Hundred percent, I agree, hundred percent. And a lot of those players should be us. You know, and that's why I'm so proud of the work that you're doing, Julia. And, you know, personally, when, you know, I think about my situation, I, I would always say, well, who's going to speak up? And then a voice said, well, maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one that has to speak up. Maybe you're the one that needs to be on the front lines or you're the one that needs to, you know, uh, apply for some of these jobs. Just like when we think about policing in our neighborhoods, you know, when we say that we're sending people into our neighborhoods to protect and serve, but they can't resonate. They don't know what it means to be a brown or black person in these neighborhoods. So maybe it needs to be us. Right. So we have to start speaking up. We have to start standing up and we have to start doing the work ourselves. Um, so that brings me to my next question. Uh, what are one or two ways, big or small, that you have personally invested in your community and why was that important to you? Let's start with you, Julia. What are some of the ways that I've, I personally have invested? Yes, I mean, and I know that, as, well, aside from being a politician um, and aside from running a nonprofit, um, what, are, what are some other things that you've done? So I, I feel like for me, there's a, there's a little simple things that we could do every day that we don't even realize. Like, for example, if you go through the drive-thru for the Dunkin' Donuts coffee, I don't know if you guys have Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks or whatever you have, but whatever drive-thru you go through in the morning. And you get the person that says, can I take your order? And that person you could tell probably like the first the three cars ahead of you were like extremely mean to them or whatever set their tone. I recycle energy. I'm like, Hey, how are you? What's going on? You know, like <laughs> I want people to not allow other people to steal their joy. 
Yes. And something as simple <laughs> as like recycling that energy. Yeah. And getting people to like, you know, recognize their power. I always talk about stepping into your power, like owning your owning it, um, being joyful. All of those things don't cost anything. It's just mm-hmm. a shift in your thinking. And if I can inspire people to redirect that energy or to be inspired in another way or to be motivated to start their own nonprofit or to recognize their power to speak up at a parent council meeting. Um, all of those things are, are, are ways that I have um, made a difference that hasn't caused me any time, energy, or money. It's just doing that, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, I, I used to do civic engagement um, as part of my Up Together work where we train people and organize them to hold elected officials accountable, right? Like there's just things that you could do with your passion. Um, I always say that if you live your purpose in life and you, you know, you pursue your purpose with passion, you're, you're good. I believe everybody should be living that, living their lives in that way um, and having a purposeful life. And so I've tried to, in many ways throughout my time on this earth is, to be a vehicle to inspire people to do just that. Mm-hmm. I know you probably wanted well, something like crazy, like no, that's great. Because <laughs> now I'm gonna recycle my energy when I go through the drive-through, and they're like, "Yes, what do you want?" And be like, "Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I want a number one. What's up?" <laughs> so I absolutely love that. That was that was actually perfect. So thank you for sharing that. And how about you, Miss Christina? Um, when I was physically able to, I, I was uh, volunteering at the food pantry, you know, um, going downtown and, and giving food to the homeless. Um, that, that was a really big thing for me because I, I, you know, have been on that other end, you know, I've been there receiving food. Um, so it meant a lot for me to, to, to give back, you know, lately, you know, with not being able to physically do any of that stuff, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find um, my place, you know, like I said, ministry is a big thing. So I am always praying for people. I do reach out to people that I don't know, you know, um, if on social media, I see somebody that hasn't, you know, just seems like they're going through something or they're struggling. I do always reach out and just say, you know, Hey, I'm always here. I'm always here. I know you don't know me. You know, if you need prayer, you need somebody to talk to, you know, I'm here, you know, and, and same as Julia, you know, I just went through that situation on Friday at my doctor's appointment and the nurse was just not having it. You know, she wasn't being rude. She just seemed like she wasn't having a good day. And I was like, hey, your hair is beautiful. And she was like, oh, thank you. And I was like, it's really pretty. And she had that gray, you know, shine to yeah. it. And she's like, this this is my natural hair. And I was like, it looks professionally done. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. she's like, I've got people in their 20s that always compliment my hair. And and it it really, really changed her mood. I could tell that it did. And, and same thing that's, I really try to do that. I, I can tell, you know, you can tell when somebody's having a bad yeah. day, you know, you don't, and you, you, they, people don't always want to be asked, are you okay? How are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, something small, like, Hey, I like your shoes. Hey, where'd you get that purse from? You know, regardless it just, just something to perk up their mood. You know, you look beautiful today, you know, just something nice because that, that is a big thing, you know, from somebody that's gone through depression and somebody that's gone through being sad and, and going through just things in, in my personal life, I, I it, it would always touch me if somebody were to just say something small, yeah. you know, anything, yeah. you know, open a door for me. Just just be kind, be generous, of course. Um, try to try to fill the room, you know, try to try to see what what you read off of people, because you can always help somebody out just by being kind to them. Yeah. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes, because we all are going through things that we don't know anything about. You know, so even just in terms of like your own personal, in terms of releasing your stress, like when I think about what I do to release my stress, you know, sometimes it's just going outside and just getting some sunshine when you've been inside all day and you just need some fresh air, you know, or maybe it's blasting your favorite music and getting in front of the mirror and just dancing. What do you what do you ladies do to relieve that stress? Mine is music. I, I, I love music. I love to sing. Um, I've had days, re, you know, a lot of days recently where I'm just not feeling good. You know, I'm, on, I, I'm just 
sad. I'm depressed. I wake up that way. I go to sleep. And I'm like, you know what? Enough's enough. You know, turn off the TV, turn off my phone. I'll go in the shower and put on worship music. And I just sing until I cry. And I always feel better. You know, music is a very, very big thing for me. Um, so mine is music and singing. And just if it's be sitting in my car with the radio full blast, you know, in my room with no, you know, no distractions. I'll even tell the kids, I'll come in my room for a little bit. You know, I put my music on and just kind of release whatever it is that I'm going through. And sometimes I don't even know what it is. Sometimes I'm like, what, what am I even thinking about? So definitely music. Music is a big thing for me. I know, man. Like, it's so weird because for me, I'm a workaholic, right? And I am always in community because of the work that I do. And even though it's weird, but like being with people is the best thing for me. Like I love being with people and it's not just for work. Like I love just being with people in general. Right. So I could go to like a birthday party and I'd be that chick at that birthday party and be like, Oh, okay. What you want to be doing with your life and how are you going to get there? Like, so I love that. I really, if I, I wish I could be like the fairy godmother that had a little magic wand and I could just help everybody do their life purpose. That gives me joy. And it's so weird. I wish, I mean, I like music too, but I just like, I don't know. Like, if I'm going to be honest, I, yeah, being with people. But it's not weird though. It's not weird. Yeah. We, we need, no, I we wish need I, more I, was, I like writing, which I do, but like, and I like traveling, but like, I don't know. I, I, I'm an extrovert. Like just being with people really gives me, just being with people. I'm trying to soak up your energy because this is like, because you give off so much energy. So no, that's not weird at all. Like, I love that because it's like you, you are able, because you know how you, um, they always tell you, be careful. Don't let other people uh, mess with your energy, right? Because, because somebody in a bad mood is going to get you in a bad mood if you're not careful, right? If you, if you absorb it, especially for people who are empathetic more so than just sympathetic, but they just absorb that. And your energy is just just like absorbing it because I love I like I love the fact that you would walk into a place and kind of be the life of the party, you know, and just come in with a smile and you know, and like Christina said, if someone you you felt that nurse having a bad day that day and you just gave her a compliment and that was it. Like it's so it's so simple. So no, not weird at all. I love that, right? Oh my goodness. If you travel far enough, you'll meet yourself. I hear that. I've heard that and I've never forgotten it. And I'm like, wow. Like, I think that's the thing. Again, we all get boxed into these little boxes. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we just got to step out, you know, whether it's our neighborhoods, our streets, our communities, and just expose ourselves to more because there's so much more out there that we have yet to experience, you know, even still like with, with people's opinions of us, you know, people have us boxed in, but it's like, yo, you don't know me, you don't see me, but it's up to us to un- exactly to remove that veil and step into our own. So, wow. I appreciate you ladies so much for sharing that and everything else you guys have shared today. Yeah. Thank you. Do you guys have any last remarks? Anything that you want to leave our listeners with today? Just, you know, any last little tidbits? So um, for me, when I and I know for a lot of people in my community, we don't want to be another statistic. I, I don't. I want to thrive. I want to succeed in this world with, when there's already so many obstacles in front of me. You know, I want to break. I, I, I want to work and I want to break just that those that connection that we have of, of being low income i i really feel like yeah, i've always felt from the beginning that god everything i'm going through god is doing it for a reason mm-hmm. you know that there's a purpose behind this you know um i don't i don't know why i'm sick you know i don't know why i have so many health conditions the doctors don't know why either but through this whole process i've gotten stronger and stronger and stronger with just knowing that there's a reason behind it. I want to help other people. I want to be that shoulder to cry on. I want you to come with me when you're having an issue with getting disability, with being on food stamps, with being on Medicaid, because I've already sat here and done this for years. I've you know, done the research. I've, I've gone through what can you do? What can't you do? When can you work? When can't you work? 
if, if that's my reason, if, if I went through all of this to be able to help people, then I am proud to go through all of this. I am glad that it is me. I'm glad that I'm going through all these trials of just, you know, having that time period of not knowing and then being able to figure it out. I want to help other people. And I know that there are so many people out there that don't want to be labeled as another statistic. You know, we're, you're, you're there because you chose to be there. You're low income because you chose to be low income. No, we're not. We're not. We want to thrive just as bad as anybody else does. Right. We want to have just as much as everybody else does. We want to provide for our children just as much as everybody else does. There's obstacles in front of us, but we're not going to let that overcome us. We're, there's no way. I know that I'm not. I know there's tons of other people out there that are not. So once that door is open for us, I, I just know that there's just going to be this explosion in this community to be able to help everybody and just to help people succeed. We, we just need that door to open so that we have the steps that we need. You know, I just want somebody to give me that, like, here you go. You know, this is, this is where you're at. Go like fly away. <laughs> I'm in like, so I, I really feel like that. That's something that people need to know. Christina, can I tell you this? You already are. You are already all of those things. You just continue to be you. You continue to shine and you just continue to just move with that big, beautiful heart that you have. Like we're all so inspired by you. So thank you. Diddle, 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 diddle. And I need to know who are your state reps and counselors so I can go well at them. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you know, and I, you know, you were talking about this whole idea of like why you were going through all of those things. And I just want to offer to, to that is that um, my grandmother, um, you know, she raised me because both of my parents left me in the Dominican Republic to pursue their, you know, American dream. And, um, and then when I came to this country, you know, she was, she came to, and she used to say to me that, cause I had a really rough upbringing and she used to tell me that no matter how bad things were, that I was on this earth for a reason, right. That I had a purpose and she made me feel like, Oh my God. I really belong here in this world for some reason. And, you know, I had attempted uh, suicide when I was a kid and, you know, I had gone through all this stuff, but it was her, um, her words of making me feel like I was special, right? Like I had a, a mission here that got me through so many things in life. And, you know, everything that you go through, you're supposed to, and all of the things that we're going through, it was, it's like a blessing if we choose to experience it as such, because that's our lived experience. And there's, there's a reason that like you, you know, you're going into ministry now, God would not give you more than what you couldn't handle. And the reason why you are who you are and what you're going through in life is because you were supposed to, you, that, that is a beautiful gift, right? And if we choose mm -hmm. to experience those things as gifts, that changes the way we experience life. And that was the gift that my grandmom gave me early on. And I've carried that into every space that I've gone into. And no matter how bad it is, I know that there's something good in it. And that changes my perspective. And that is what I'll offer those who are listening is that embrace those um, moments because they shape who you are. They help set the tone for how you are going to respond. And so it's all good, no matter how bad it is. And so own it because that's your, that's yours. And nobody else can have that, but you. Own it. I love it. Own it. I love I'm going to leave that with <laughs> own it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Councilwoman Julia Mejia and Cristina Gonzalez, ladies and gentlemen, um, if there is a way to contact you guys, do you have uh social handles, uh, an email that people can contact you if they would like. All right. So, yeah. oh my God. Yes, please. I am asking everyone and their mother who's listening right now to please follow me on Instagram. I am at Julia F O R Boston. So that's Julia for Boston, the word for F O R. I'm Julia for Boston on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. But the reason why I stress Instagram is because I do a lot of pop-up lives where I just roll up on people. Um, and that's a way for me to connect with my with my folks. 
it might just like community. Yeah. So you can follow me whatever platform you want, but Instagram is where I feel like is the more personable one for me. That's the one that you really get to see who I am. So Julia for FOR Boston. Christina? Um, I'm, I I have no idea how to use social media besides Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are always just like, oh my God, mom, you're so old. <laughs> we're going to get you set up, girl. Don't worry. We're going to figure it out. <laughs> and, and there's probably a million, you know, Christina Gonzalez is on Facebook, but I have an email. Of course, if anybody ever wants to email, reach out to me for anything. Even people that hear this and want prayer, people that hear this and, and want help, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is Christina Deanda. 25 at gmail so then c-h-r-i-s-t-i-n-a then d as in david e-a-n-d-a 25 at gmail ladies we have you have no idea how much we really appreciate you guys being on with us and just even taking the time out of your schedules to talk to us um candy honored absolutely honored this was a powerful episode again thank you both for sharing your hearts sharing your stories and sharing your strengths with the world we're so glad to have you moving up together was created by the national nonprofit up together and produced by creative differences If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.